Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For you who are first-time guests, congratulations. You are visiting with us on the Sunday that we are tackling one of the most difficult issues that the Bible addresses for the church of Jesus Christ. It's a passage that few pastors teach on and even fewer churches practice. To be honest with you, I'm convinced that many churches simply ignore this teaching. Now, what teaching am I talking about? I'm talking about the teaching of church discipline. There are very few things that seem further removed from our culture today in the church than the idea of church discipline. But before you start wondering who is going to get kicked out of church today, let me put your mind to ease. We're not going to do that, and yet, we need to understand this is a teaching that Jesus clearly taught. It is a teaching that the first century church practiced, but somehow... It seems that it has been forgotten and maybe even forsaken in the 21st century church. Now, let me clarify something before we go any further. You see, church discipline isn't about God getting even with us. It's not even about God's divine retribution against our sin. It's always, always about a God who loves his people so much that he disciplines them when they wander into that which threatens to harm them, hurt them, and ultimately destroy them. So with that said, what I want us to do is I want us to read this passage, I want us to pray, and then I want us to discover what God says on this issue. Let's begin in chapter 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not present physically with you, I am with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you were assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast worked to the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or, or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. No. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Such a man do not even eat. 
what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Therefore, expel the wicked man from among you. Let's pray together. Father God, this is a tough passage. And it's something that is foreign to to many of our minds because we haven't, Lord, been in the word perhaps like we should. And so, Father, I pray today that you will indeed give us ears to hear. I, I pray that you'll give me words to say that, Lord, convey my heart's desire. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we read this passage, if you're like me, there are many questions that, that come to mind. Questions like, isn't the church to welcome sinners? And yet, here it says that you are to expel sinners. You're to remove sinners. Aren't we supposed to deliver people from the hands of Satan? And yet, here we're told to deliver a man to Satan. How can, how can we judge someone else when we're all sinners? Isn't that self-righteous? Isn't that arrogant? What does it mean when it says we're not even to eat with such a person? Does that mean that, that I don't have anything to do with them? Now, as we begin to unpack this story, I want us to first look at the report. And we see this report in verses 1 and 2. Paul is in Ephesus. We learned that in week 1. And he hears a report that shocks him. And actually there are two things that shock Paul. The first is the sin that is in the church. A man who is a member of the church, a professing Christian, is in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Don't understand. This is not hearsay. This is not gossip. This was commonly known both in the church and in the city. The way it is written indicates that this was not his biological mother. This was his stepmother that he was in this relationship with. Now, the word for sexual immorality in verse 1 is, is the Greek word porneia, and it's in the present infinitive, which means that this was presently going on. This was an ongoing, continuous sin that this man was unwilling to change. The word pornea refers to all kinds of sexual sin. There are various words in the Bible to refer to sexual sin, but this is an overarching word that would include any sex outside of the bond of marriage between a man and a woman. It would include adultery. It would include homosexuality. It would include all the sins that we read about in the Old Testament. And so he was involved in this Porneia, this evil, sinful practice. And Paul says that this sin is of the kind that even the pagans know is wrong. You see, this is a big deal. Because Corinth was one of the most lax cities in the known world at this time. And what Paul is saying is that this sin is so heinous, this sin is so repulsive, that even the people who do not call themselves Christians, who live in the city of Corinth, recognize that this is wrong. Now understand, Paul is not saying that, that not Christians would ever commit this. Rather, he's saying that even pagan public opinion would not condone this sin. And yet, here was this man who was an actor 
active member of the church, even though his lifestyle was clearly opposed to what God's word taught. We don't know. But perhaps he was leading a small group. Perhaps he was taking up the offering. Perhaps he was singing on the praise team. Perhaps he was working in the children's ministry. What we do know is that he was actively involved. He was professing to be a Christian. And yet, he was living in open and flagrant sin. So the sin in the church. But next notice, the sin of the church. You see, the Bible teaches that the church not only allowed this sin to continue, they not only allowed him to come and serve and be a part of the church, they were proud of what he was doing. They were not just accepting of what he was doing, they were proud. They had adopted a destructive view of grace that led to this extreme tolerance to the point that they were so open-minded They would welcome and accept and celebrate any sin. Now, the word for proud in verse 2 is is a Greek word that was used of a bird that that fluffs out his feathers and becomes puffed up. Outside our, our bedroom door, going to our back porch, we have a couple of chairs. And the other week, there were two birds that were sitting on the chair. And one of those birds just got real cozy in one of those chairs, and he puffed up. Have you seen birds do that before? And this is the word that Paul is using to describe the church. They are puffed up and proud that they are letting this go on. They're saying, look who we are. We are a church of open minds and open hearts. We're the church that accepts all lifestyles, however deviant they may be. We embrace anyone and we embrace everyone. And yet Paul said, hear me, Paul said they should be filled with grief. Now that word for grief is a word used to describe uh, mourning when someone who is a close friend dies. Paul says we should be overwhelmed with grief and mourning. We should be broken Because of this sin in the life of this believer. And yet, instead of being broken and mourning, we're rejoicing. Understand, we don't become self-righteous. We don't point fingers. But as we see sin in the life of fellow believers, it brings grief to our heart. You see, the church had been planted in the city of Corinth to change the city. But instead of the church changing the city, the city was changing the church. And the church was beginning to not only adopt and adapt the practices of the city, they were going even further than the people of the city would go. One writer said it this way. He said, a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. When we cease to be shot by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. A casual approach to sin in others' lives leads to a casual approach to sin in our lives. In the same way, a casual approach to sin in our lives leads to a casual approach to sin in others' lives. These things feed off each other. Now, I want you to notice something here. You've probably seen it. The woman is never mentioned, is she? We're told that he is having a sexual relationship with her, but it never deals with what to do with the woman. Do you know why? 
she's not a member of the church. She's not a professed Christian. You see, you need to understand, and we're going to say this again, it's not our job to point out the sins of the world. But it is our job to deal with the sin that is in the fellowship, the sin that is in the body. But let's move on. The next thing we see is the response. And we see this in verses 3 through 5. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, I have already passed judgment on this. In other words, this doesn't need to be discussed You don't need to debate it. You don't need to determine what to do. It is evident what to do. I've already judged this man, and you need to do the same thing. Now, he says, first of all, assemble the body. Assemble the body. I want you to take a look back. You can turn with me in your Bibles if you want to. You can put this on your notes. But to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, I want you to listen to what Jesus said there. He said, if your brother sins against you, go, show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now notice who Jesus is talking to there. He's talking to the church. You see, this is Jesus' initial instruction to the church in the New Testament. Understand, this is the first time Jesus gives instruction to the church. Jesus only mentioned the church twice in the Gospels. And this is the only time he gave instruction. And when he gave instruction, what was he given instruction on? He was given instruction on church discipline. So you need to understand this is important stuff. This is fundamental. This is, this is not something that is 100 on a scale of 101. This is important. David Platt said this. He said, this is the top of the list, which means if this is not taught and emphasized and made, significance, made significant in the context of the church today, then we are missing Christ's design for his church and we're ignoring Christ's commands to his church. I understand this teaching is not an optional principle. According to Jesus Christ, it is an essential practice. Church discipline is extremely important. Now notice the pattern of how we're to do this. When there is clear unrepentant sin in the life of a believer, the person that sees it is to go to them privately And talk to them. Beg them. Plead with them. Compel them to repent. If they repent, you have regained a brother. But if they don't, then you are to take a small group with you. That small group is to bear witness of what is going on. If they repent, you have gained back a brother. But if not... You were to take it to the church. And when it is taken to the church, if the person repents, you have gained a brother. But if they do not, you are to expel them from the body. You're to treat them like a pagan and a tax collector. 
Now notice what Paul says is to happen when a member does not repent. Hand them over to Satan. Hand them over to Satan. In other words, remove them from the fellowship. Now we think this is radical. But we need to understand that this form of discipline is always the last resort. You don't bring someone's sin publicly before the church until you have done everything within your power to deal with this sin and urge and compel and lead this person to sin, to, 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 to repent and turn from their sin. And when you're dealing with the sin, you always deal with it humbly and you always deal with it gracefully. We've always got to do that. Now, this is important. Because God is letting us know here when he says that the church is to hand him over to Satan. This is letting us know that the church is God's instrument. The church is God's body on earth. God works, hear me, God works through his church. Now I want you to look back at Matthew again. Matthew chapter 16, this is the, this is the second passage in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus uses the term church. And in Matthew 16, it's the passage where Jesus is asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, you are right. And upon this rock, upon this foundation, that I am Lord of all, I am going to build my church. And then notice what he says. He said, and then in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus is saying to the church, I'm giving you. And understand, he's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to an individual. He says, I am giving to you, the church, the keys of the kingdom. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying, hear me. Jesus is saying that the church has the authority to declare people forgiven by God or not forgiven by God based upon their confession that Jesus is Lord. You see, we as the church say to the world, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you will be free from sin. You will be loosed from sin's penalty forever. And we can say that based upon the authority of Jesus. And yet at the same time, based upon the authority of Jesus, we can say to the world, if you do not turn from your sin, if you do not trust in Jesus as your Savior, sin will have a hold on your life and the result will be eternity in hell. And it's the church's job to proclaim that. You see, the church is vital. You see, what Jesus is saying is God always said our relationship to him is not only personal, it is also corporate. Individually, we are collectively part of a body that makes up the bride of Christ. We don't live in isolation. We are part of a whole and what we do affects the entire body. So as a church... We have a responsibility to deal with sin in the body because that part of the body is part of us. 
And so we see the response. But then third, we see the reason. The reason for this action, and there are two primary reasons. We see this in verses 5 through 13. The first is the salvation, the restoration of, of the individual. You see, church discipline is never about punishment. It's, it's always about restoration, restoring someone, bringing them back, saving them. It's never about banishing them. It's never about punishing them. For you as parents, why do you discipline your children? Do you discipline your children to punish them or do you discipline them to instruct them? I would hope that you never discipline your children just to punish. I hope that your discipline is always for the purpose of correction. You don't discipline your children to hurt them. You discipline them to help them. Now notice what Paul says in verse 10. If you've got your Bible still open, he says, this man calls himself a brother. One translation says he claims to be. Another one says he is a so-called brother. Now, how do we know? I mean, how do we know if a person is a believer or not? I mean, how can we tell? The Bible says the only way that we can tell is by their fruit, correct? By their fruit, you will know them. Now look back at verse 5. In verse 5, we are told that we hand this person over to Satan so that their sinful nature can be destroyed and their soul saved on the day of judgment. The day of judgment here is talking about that final judgment when we stand before God. And Paul is saying we're doing this so that when they stand before God, they will be saved. But I want you to notice something about that word saved. That word is in the subjective mood, which means it's yet to be seen. In other words, what Paul is saying is we can't know for sure that person is saved or not. Only God can really know that. All we can do is look at the fruit. And when we look at the fruit of someone who claims to be a believer and their fruit isn't in line with what it means to be a believer, all we can assume is that they really aren't a believer. That's what the apostle Paul is saying here. That's what the word of God says. So before we go any further, we've got to answer the question. I mean, I'm sure some of you are asking this question. Can a believer fall into sin? Can a believer fall into sin that is so heinous that even public opinion says it's wrong? And the answer to that is unfortunately yes. You see, a believer can fall into any sin that an unbeliever can fall into. That's why we as believers are commanded to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. That's why we are told to flee from sexual immorality that literally is at war against our soul. You see, apart from the grace of God and the power of His Holy Spirit working in us, any of us in here can fall to any and every sin that Satan puts before us. If you sit back and say, well, I'm immune to certain sins, you better watch out. Because you are opening yourself up for attack. You see, that's why the songwriter says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Even as believers, there is a part of us that is prone to wander and prone to leave God. But understand, I believe with all my heart that the Word teaches that if a person is saved, if they have truly turned from their sin and trusted Jesus, they will eventually come back. Now you say, Rocky, do you have any biblical precedent to say that? Well, let's look at this man. He was expelled from the church. When Paul wrote his next letter to Corinth, 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he addresses someone who has sinned and evidently has repented. And Paul says, you need to welcome him back now. You see, I am convinced with all my heart that when we're saved, Something happens inside of us that that the human eye cannot see. God's Spirit comes to live in us. And God's Spirit has a different view of sin than our spirit. And even if we wander, even if we rebel when we wander from God, there's going to be something within us that is drawing us back to God. You see, discipline is always about restoring someone, never punishing someone, or, or saving someone who, who may think they're saved, but they're not really saved. But there's a second reason the church exercises discipline, and that's the purity of the church. I want you to think for a moment, and this may be a little a little much for some of you, but I want you to think for a moment that it's your wedding day and you're standing there as a groom waiting for your bride and your bride walks down the aisle. But next to her are all the men that she slept with that week. How would that make you feel? Would that bother you a little bit? That the woman that you love, the bride that you have called your own, has defiled herself with other men before she is wed to you? Would that bother you? I hope so. Well, the Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. And in Revelation chapter 19, it says that we are to be wearing linen And clothes that represent the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, as the body, the bride of Christ, the church, we are to be pure when we stand before God. This is a big deal. This is a real big deal. But it's not only a big deal because of what an impure bride means to Jesus. It's a big deal Because of what it means to us. Let me take you back to the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua. God had delivered his people out of slavery. They are about to enter the promised land. And and the first city they are going in to conquer is Jericho. And God says to the people of Israel. I want you to absolutely destroy everything. And this stuff is to be given to me. Set apart from me. You cannot take it for your own. God was very clear. There was one man, his name was Achan, who took some of the things that were to be set apart from God. He disobeyed God. He sinned against God. 
And, and the Bible tells us that when the nation of Israel went into their next battle, they were soundly defeated. And when they discovered why, it was because of the sin of one man. And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 11, God said, Israel has sinned. Now listen to what it says there. One man, one man sinned. But because he was a part of the whole, the entire nation was held accountable for the sin until the sin was dealt with. Do you see that? You see, this is a big deal. But it's not only a big deal because we're the bride of Christ and we need to be pure. And it's not only a big deal because we're held accountable. It's a big deal because if we don't deal with sin, it spreads to the body. Paul said it's like yeast. A little bit of yeast will cause the entire batch of dough to rise. Just like a little bit of sin, if not dealt with, will cause the entire church to fall. Now, you're probably asking, okay, what sins do we deal with? I mean, if, if, if someone lets a cuss word fly, we're supposed to bring them before the church? You know, when, when do we deal with this? First of all, you need to understand we're talking about unrepentant sin. We're talking about sin where someone says, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the church says. I'm going to do what I want to do. We're talking about that kind of sin. We're, we're not talking about someone who messes up, who blows it in the most heinous ways, but then seeks forgiveness. We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the person who is defiant before God and defiant before his church. And then Paul mentions some sins. He mentions some very specific sins. He mentions sexual immorality. He mentions the greedy, the swindlers, those whose desire for money is controlling them to the point that they're taking advantage of other people. He mentions idolaters, which is worshiping other gods, slanderers, someone who's always cutting down, lashing out with their words, other people, drunkards, those who are habitually under the influence of alcohol, or, or I would dare say some other mind-altering drug. And, and understand, though you may want to, this is a saying if someone is a social drinker, you bring them before the church. You may want to do that. I, I might would want to do that. But this isn't what this is saying. It's saying if someone is a drunkard, they are a habitual drunkard. And the world knows. The community knows. They're a drunkard. They are sexually immoral. It's not that they have blown it and messed up. They're saying, I am going to live this way. I don't care what you say. The greedy who are taking advantage of people and they're saying, I don't care what you say. It's all about me. Paul says when someone is doing that, when they are habitually sinning and they are unwilling to repent, you must deal with them. Now, let me make very clear. That, that Paul says we're not to judge the world, we're to judge our own members. We're not responsible for the world, but we are responsible for one another. He doesn't say we're to separate from the world. He says we're to separate, live separate lives. We're to live distinct from the world, but we're to love the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners. You see, how can we reach the world who desperately needs to hear the gospel if we don't love 
the world. You see, in the church, if there is sin, we have to recognize if it's not dealt with, it's a cancer that will spread, will corrupt, and ultimately destroy the body. So, the question is, why don't we discipline today and we need to hurry through this? Let me give you three reasons. First, I believe we see it as judgmental. That's why we don't do it. After all, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? Didn't Jesus say that? I mean, didn't Jesus say when the woman was caught in adultery, you who were without sin cast the first stone? Isn't that what the Bible says? So how can we judge? I mean, we hear people say, well, it's not my place to judge you, and it's certainly not your place to judge me. But when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, it says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? The Apostle Paul makes it very clearly that we are to judge one another. Parents, let me ask you a question. If your child was diagnosed with a serious nut allergy that could kill them, listen to me. Your children were diagnosed with a serious nut allergy that could kill them. But your children loved nuts. They just had a taste for nuts. And they didn't want to give up nuts. Would you as a parent go, well, you know, I want my children happy. They love nuts. And so I'm just going to have to let them eat the nuts. No, you would, you would do whatever you had to do to keep them from eating those nuts and recognize that those nuts have the potential to not only hurt them, but to kill them. You see, church discipline isn't judgmental. Church discipline is loving. It's the most loving thing that we can do as a church. Think about it. Christ has given us commands that are for our good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Does Jesus give us commands to hurt us, to harm us, to keep us from good? No. He gives us commands for our good. And so when we see a brother or a sister wandering from those commands, if we love that brother or sister, we're going to call them back to the commands of God. It's that simple. But we've missed it. We've gotten confused to the point that that we see a brother or sister wandering in sin and we sit back and we say, that's their life. That's their decision. That's their responsibility. But can I tell you, that's spiritual cowardness. And it's spiritual carelessness. I want to be honest with you. I want you to look at me. If you see me falling into sin, don't leave me alone. Come to me. Don't let me wander down a path that could eventually destroy my life. Come to me in love to help me. If you have to rebuke me and help me get my eyes back where they need to be. You see, discipline isn't a judgmental thing. It's a loving thing. The second reason we don't discipline is this. We are afraid to be judged. You see, the problem is we've got sin in our own lives we don't want to deal with. And and if we start doing this in the church, and I'm not talking about little things. I'm talking about the major things. Paul addresses here, we know that if somebody is confronted 
with their sin, then maybe I may be confronted with my sin. And yet, didn't we get saved to be set free from sin? It's our job to to judge one another because we're one body. We love one another. And understand, hear me. I know that there are those who are who believe with all their heart they're sovereignly appointed by God to be the keepers of all things true and righteous. You met some people like that? I have. I mean, they're ready to come to you at a moment's notice and tell you what you're doing wrong. And as they come to you, they're hitting you with that big log sticking out of their own eye. And so we've got to understand that that we've got to, first of all, deal with our sins before we can ever as a church recognize that corporately we're called to deal with sin. But there's a third reason that the church doesn't discipline, and that's because I believe we're afraid that people will leave. Nobody will come. I mean, really, that's a slogan to grow the church, isn't it? I mean, we like the church where everyone's loved. The church where your needs will be met. But can you imagine, put on the billboard, we're a church that will discipline you. It's a gross slogan. Come to our church and get disciplined. We say people will turn away. And to be honest with you, we say if we do exercise discipline in the church like the Bible teaches, somebody will just get in their car and ride down the road and go to another church. So what good is it? But what we need to realize is this. First of all, it's not our responsibility to grow the church. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful with sharing the gospel and being the people of God. Uh, Paul said... I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. Now, let me give you an example. In in Acts chapter 5, there was sin in the church, and God never even really let the church deal with it. Peter was the only one involved. There was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold some property and told the church that they sold the property for this amount, and they were giving the whole amount to the church, and they were lying They were giving just a little bit of it to the church. They're keeping the rest for themselves. And there was nothing wrong with them determining what they were going to give. The problem was they were lying to the church. And Peter confronted them. And you know what happened? Both of them, husband and wife, fell down dead. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says great fear came upon the church. But I want you to hear what it says a couple of verses later. It says, nevertheless... More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. (laughs) Here they were being the church, exercising discipline, trusting God, and God was growing the church. And so we don't exercise discipline because we say it's judgmental. We don't want to be judged. And we say, well, how are we going to ever grow a church that way? But I believe with all my heart there's another reason. You see, those are subliminal reasons. Those are secondary reasons, maybe. But there are two real reasons that we don't practice church discipline. Here's number one. We don't understand salvation. We don't really understand what salvation is. 
You see, salvation isn't deliverance from hell. Salvation is deliverance from sin. The gospel teaches that God loved us enough to pursue us in our sin, call us out of our sin, save us from our sin, and through the power of His Spirit, give us the power to have victory over sin. You see, God loves us so much that He didn't leave us in our sin. Salvation is first of all turning from sin. We can't ever be saved until we first make a decision to turn from sin. And once we turn from sin, then we are in the position to realize, I don't have the strength to deal with my sin on my own. I don't have the resources to pay for my sin on my own. I need a Savior And once we come to that point that we turn from our sin and we desire to be set free from our sin, we can see the Savior hanging on a cross who paid the price for our sin. And I'm here to tell you today that if you're here and you've never turned from sin, that's what you need to do today. You need to turn from sin and trust a Savior That loves you so much that he pursued you and loved you in spite of your sin. But there's a second reason that I don't, I think we don't exercise church discipline. That is, we have a weak view of the holiness of God. Let me say that a little bit stronger. I believe we've lost a concept of the holiness of God. We've so focused on the love of God in the church today. That we've forgotten God is a holy God. God is so holy that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and the sin of the world was upon him, the Father had to turn from the Son and the Son said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is a holy God that cannot tolerate sin and nothing that is sinful can be in the presence of a holy God. Our sin must be dealt with. And yet we so focus on the love of God that we forget he's also holy. Now for some of you're saying this morning, where does that leave me? Where does that leave me as a believer who is caught up in sin right now? Well, if you're a believer and you're living in sin, whether it be sexual immorality, whether it be greed, whether it be idolatry, whether it be drunkenness, whether it be um, uh, words that you're saying, if you're caught up in any of those sins and you are a believer, let me tell you, I believe with all my heart, the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. I believe that. And you need to understand that a God who loves and a God who forgives will take you back. You say, what if I'm not a believer? What do I need to do? You need to come to that same God. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The prodigal son went to his father and said, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance right now. 
And the father gave him his inheritance. He went off into a foreign land. And the Bible says lived a wild life and squandered everything he had. Began to live with the pigs, feed with the pigs. One day he got tired of being in the pigs. He opened his eyes, realized where he was. And he said, I need to go back home to my father. But his thought was his father wouldn't take him back. So he began that long journey back home to the father. Broken, wounded, filled with grief. What he didn't know is that his father was longing for him to come home. And most likely every day his father would stand there and look over the horizon and he would go, I wonder if today may be the day my my son comes home. And he would look and he would look and one day his father was there and he looked over the horizon. He saw his son coming home. And he went out and he ran to his son. He hugged his son and his son said, forgive me. I've sinned against you. Will you take me back as a servant? And he said, you're not a servant, you're a son. He forgave him. Restored him. But understand, what did the son have to do? The son had to leave the pig pen. He had to get tired of the pig slop. And he had to turn to the father. And when he did, the father accepted and forgave and restored. And that's what church discipline is all about. God restoring people he loves. So if you're here and you're a believer caught in sin, turn from your sin today. Beg for God's forgiveness. And you're going to discover you didn't even need to beg because God is there with open arms. If you're here and you're not a believer, cry out to God for mercy. Turn from your sin. He'll forgive you. I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes. And with every head bowed, with every eye closed, listen. This is so important this morning. It's so important. Because if you're here and you're living in sin, you are in a dangerous place. Regardless of whether you are a believer or not, you are in a dangerous place. And you need to repent. And you need to turn back to God or turn to God and turn from that sin and let Him have His way in you. Because you'll never find what you're looking for in the pig pit of sin. And so if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer right now. And if God's Spirit is drawing you, if He's not, it won't do you any good to pray. But if God's Spirit's drawing you and you know you need a Savior, pray this prayer right now. And if you've never accepted Jesus, dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to be in bondage to sin anymore. I know my best efforts are never going to set me free. I need help. I need a Savior. Jesus, save me. Set me free from sin's penalty, from sin's power. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to do that. Save me, I pray. Amen. Eyes still closed, heads still bowed.
you're here and you're a believer, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved, but you're living with sin right now. And you're willing to humble yourself before God. Pray this prayer. Oh God, forgive me. I've known your love. I've experienced your grace. But I've turned from you and chased after the world. Oh God, forgive me. I'm coming home. I don't want to live in bondage anymore. I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning to you and giving you control. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Amen.